in that hymn written by Philip Doddridge, we've been reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ is the promised Saviour. He's the one who sets us free from the captivity of sin. He's the one who brings spiritual sight to blind eyes. Last week we considered that he comes the broken heart to bind, the bleeding soul to cure, and with the treasures of his grace to enrich the humble poor. He's the great physician of souls. And so our glad hosannas, Prince of Peace, thy welcome shall proclaim, and heaven's eternal arches ring with thy beloved name. Now Christ as Prince of Peace will be one of the themes that we have yet to consider in these midweek devotionals that we're doing from Isaiah chapter 9. That's, of course, the last of those names that that are ascribed to Christ there in verse 6. That will be a week on Tuesday in our series, so listen in for that. But I want to focus on that last line in Philip Doddridge's hymn, Heaven's eternal arches ring with Christ's beloved name. For all of eternity, the name of Christ will be on the lips of saints and angels in heaven. But it won't be in the form of a memorial service for someone fondly remembered but no longer with us. It will be an act of worship with him present in front of us, enthroned in his glory at the right hand of the Father. And that thought, that sight which is brought to us on the pages of the Bible is the final destination where all of us as Christian people are heading. How easily we can live as if getting the most out of this earthly life is the thing which matters most. Perhaps even more than anything else. And being a Christian is something that we promote to enable you to do that. As just one of the many alternatives that the world would suggest. The Bible makes clear that whilst our walk down here on this earth is by no means insignificant... That which awaits us in heaven is so much more glorious. It's almost meaningless trying to compare the one with the other. Is it not the case that on most ordinary days we can get so caught up in the things of this life and this world that we never give a moment's thought for that which is yet to come? But our eternal home and rest and peace in a place of unimaginable righteousness and holiness and of never-ending praise, surely that ought to capture our souls constantly as the Lord's people. 
that Jesus is our certain hope for all eternity and in all eternity. Well, I want to consider three things with you. Here's the first. The existence of heaven. That this isn't just some fantasy land we're talking about. This is real. Now, if you wanted me to provide you with some sort of physical evidence, something that I could just plonk on the stage alongside me here and say, there you go, see, heaven is real. Well, we'll all be waiting for a very long time. There's nothing that I can bring or produce that you can touch with your hands or see with your eyes in that sense. But the evidence does exist. Heaven is not a physical place. It's the spiritual realm in which God and his angels dwell. His angels, of course, being created beings in the same way that we are created beings, but they remaining in that spiritual realm where God is. The language that the Bible uses, for example, depicting God seated on his throne is pictorial language to help us understand something of his majesty and his, his awesome, awesome power. It uses images that we, we recognize to help us understand spiritual truths and realities. It's true to say that heaven is nowhere physically, and yet it's right next to you. At the same time, it's where God is and God is everywhere. The evidence of the existence of heaven is that when you look at the wonder of God's creation, you know that you are beholding the handiwork of a master designer. The Psalms abound with declarations of God's creation declaring his glory. And there's something in your soul that tells you there is a God in heaven who made all of this. Even those who are convinced that there is no God those who believe that evolution can be the only way that any of this stuff came to be, we find that even they use the language of design as they try to explain the complexities of all that God has done. The staggering beauty of creation can literally take your breath away at times and it touches your soul. You feel like it does. Because all that you are observing is the handiwork of a God who is infinitely wise and almighty and good. The existence of heaven resonates within your own conscience. You realize that all of mankind has a common sense of what is right and what is wrong. Even if, because of sin, we so often choose the wrong instead of the right, nevertheless, we know and understand the choices we're making. We know that wrongdoing deserves punishment. We just kid ourselves that as long as I can get away with it, it's worth taking the chance. Some of you will have seen the story that hit the, the news headlines the other week, about two weeks ago now, wasn't it, I think? 
the, uh, the singer, Rita Ora, who held an illegal birthday party with about 30 guests. And as soon as she'd been rumbled, she issued an apology, offered to pay the £10,000 fine, and loads of journalists were making the comment that she was simply sorry that she'd been found out, and she'd have had no remorse whatsoever if she'd got away with it. Well, only she knows the truth about that, but I think we know only too well what they mean. We are, as Paul explains in Romans 1 and 2, without excuse when it comes to our sin. We know within ourselves there is a God in heaven to whom I am accountable. And we know that heaven exists when people who ordinarily have no thought for God hope above hope that there is a better place that their loved ones have gone to when they pass away. In a world which says there is no God, in a world that says that we all evolved by chance out of some primeval soup, the thought of a better existence beyond the grave is the most ridiculous and irrational thought to think if that's the truth of where we came from. Yet nearly everyone thinks it. Because in their soul, they know. And the existence of heaven is most powerfully and clearly seen in that revelation which came from heaven in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tens of thousands witnessed the miraculous and supernatural life and ministry of Jesus. He said of himself, no one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven. That is the son of man who is in heaven. Heaven is where I've come from. Heaven has been my eternal abode and I have come down to you. He said, I say to you, Moses did, did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And there he stood in front of thousands. I am the bread of life, he declared. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. And if you eat of this bread, you will live forever. Only the one who is eternal God can give eternal life. And it's found in Christ and Christ alone. And for those who were given the privilege of witnessing the life of Jesus, of listening to him teach, observing the miracles that he performed, they were in no doubt about from where this man had come. Do you remember the words of Nicodemus from this morning in John chapter 3? Rabbi. That's a considerable mark of respect to call him that. This is just this apparently uneducated carpenter's son from 
up north Galilee to call him rabbi, given the position of Nicodemus as a, a leader of the people. We know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Um, we hear the people later on in John chapter 9. If this man were not from God, this is someone who Jesus has healed. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He's the man come from God. What they perhaps had not understood is the depth of the truth which lay behind that phrase, come from God. Even we use the phrase as something having been heaven sent or something as being a God send. But most people don't mean that literally, do they? It's just speaking of something really good. But heaven is literally true, as is the one who has come down from heaven. We're told in the Gospels that God's voice was heard from heaven at the baptism of Jesus, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And later in that, on that occasion that we call the transfiguration on top of the mountain, the disciples who were with Jesus heard that same voice speak once again. Peter testifies in his second letter that on both occasions, those who were present really did hear that voice that came down from heaven. And Jesus, in the, the simple example of prayer which he gave to his disciples at their request, in this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven. Heaven is real. The God who dwells there is real. The Savior who came from there is real. And by his Spirit, God convinces men and women and boys and girls that these things are true. Has he convinced you yet? The existence of heaven. Heaven is real. Secondly, our assurance of heaven. Do you know that when you die, you will be with Christ, which is far better? When you read through the New Testament letters, one of the things which strikes you is how much they make of what we have to look forward to either after we die or when Christ returns, whichever comes first. They have a very real sense that whatever time we have left here is to be seen only as the prelude of what will follow, but also a time of preparation and service before that happens. And, and from them, you see certain great principles flowing out from them. 
you learn as you read through particularly the, the letters of Paul and Peter, you, you learn that our circumstances in this life, whatever they may be, are to be seen as temporary. Our resources in this life, such as we have, are to be given up for the service of the Lord. Our focus in this life is not to be the things of this world, but of God's kingdom. Our joy in this life is to see the elect of Christ coming to faith and having the same assurance of heaven in their heart as you have in yours. Our hope in this life is that it will soon be over and then we're on to a far better place. Our concern for what is happening in the world, however you look at it, politically, economically, philosophically, scientifically, whatever it is that captures your mind, whatever is happening in the world always takes second place to the fact that the world is dead in trespasses and sins and that we must share with them the love and the grace of God as it is seen and found in the person of Christ. Let them know let them know of the hope that we have in him and that if they trust in him also, they can have that same hope. In the times of the New Testament, I can assure you that socially, politically, economically, Jesus and the apostles could have found as much as you or I that they didn't agree with. Things that flew in the face of God's word. Things that were just as immoral, deceitful, and corrupt as anything that you see today. Yet the only real challenges against authority that you find in the New Testament is of a spiritual nature, as Jesus tackles the false shepherds of Israel. Heard about them this morning, didn't we? The false shepherds of Israel in the form of the scribes and the Pharisees and uh, the ruling council in Jerusalem, as they were in Jesus' day. Just as we heard Jesus say to Nicodemus this morning, are you the teacher of Israel? You don't know these things. And the subject under consideration was not politics. It wasn't how can you sleep at night with Israel under the thumb of Rome? Jesus wasn't really concerned about those kinds of things. It was issues of the gospel. It was issues of having a true and living faith with God. It was issues of knowing that your sins are forgiven. And that you are a member of the true Israel of God, the church of Christ. These concerns far surpass all others in the New Testament. And they should us as well today. Paul said this right into the Philippians. Many are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Whose end is destruction. Whose God is their belly. Whose glory is in their shame. 
who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. To the Colossians, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. To the Thessalonians, they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. We have those words from Peter that we read earlier. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. What is that living hope? It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away that is reserved in heaven for you. That's the focal point of these men in all that they taught, in all that they, they thought, in all that they shared with the Lord's people. What does Timothy share with the believers in Thessalonica? He asks a question. What is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? To see all of you united with all the church of Christ in the presence of your Savior knowing that you are going to be with him forever. Above anything else, above everything else, says Paul, that is what fills us with joy. That is what's at the forefront of our minds. That's what spurs us on in gospel work. That is the preeminent thing that is in our lives. You don't find Paul writing to churches, wringing his hands and fretting and worrying about the state of the world, godless decisions and wicked actions being taken by Rome every single day. In a society, bear in mind, where religion included prostitutes in temples and where social recreation included included watching people being slaughtered in amphitheaters for fun. And you think we've got problems? I'm sure he had opinions about those things. But that's not his chief concern. In him, 
you see a man who knows that the only hope for anyone in the world is Christ. And they need to know about him. And they need to turn to him. And they need the salvation which he alone can provide. And that, far above anything else, is what spurs Paul on. Having a concern for Christ, engaging in gospel ministry, is the only thing that really matters this side of heaven. The only way he ever asks Christians to view the world is as it is in its sinfulness. And to remind them that for them as Christians, that is over. It's finished in Christ. In Christ, you're a new creation. And getting to and remaining with him in heaven is where it's all heading. And actually is what it's all about. So Peter would write, Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. And that's where we're heading. And that's what filled these men with resolution to take the gospel out into the whole world. One day soon we're going to be there with him. We want to have served served him as faithful stewards whilst we're here and that's what's occupying our thoughts that's what should occupy our thoughts these are the things that should guide us in setting our priorities for ourselves today you may have your own political persuasions you may have them you may have your opinions about decisions that governments are taking. You can have them. Do remember that God works out his purposes through all of these things. That he's even able to turn the hearts of kings. And so we should certainly pray about these things. But there's something so much more important. Do you have the assurance of heaven? Do you have the assurance of an eternity that you are going to spend with Christ? Nothing, but nothing is more important than that. Nothing, but nothing must distract us from that. From the centrality of gospel living. From the centrality of gospel preaching. Because heaven is real. And people may know in Christ that that's where they're going. And there's nothing more important. And that leads to us, to us concluding finally that we should be those who are investing in heaven. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, well-known words, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. 
Well, those two verses say all that needs to be said, really, don't they? You'll see adverts on TV trying to persuade you to invest in a certain way towards a certain goal. Invest in this, invest in that, put your resources here, put your resources there. Look at the dividends it will reap. Use this financial product, use this piece of exercise equipment, adopt this exercise program, use this particular type of diet. Well, there can be some legitimacy and validity in lots of those kinds of things. But all of them are temporary. None of them will keep you from the grave. So of all of those adverts, perhaps the one for the insurance policy for paying your funeral costs, maybe that's one you should listen to. What they all do require, if you're taken in by any of them, is a degree of persuasion and commitment. The Apostle Paul speaks about persuasion and commitment like this in Philippians chapter 3. What things were gain to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, that's how he used to be as a Pharisee, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained, not that I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Brothers, sisters in Christ, Paul says, I'm just on my way to heaven and I'm doing everything that I can through faith in Christ to give a good account of myself as a steward here so that I can be welcomed as a good steward there. But that, he, is what it's all about.
That description that you read in Philippians chapter 3, as Paul describes himself, I want to suggest to you that all of us who are in Christ should be seeking to get our lives to fit that description. And because of this, Paul could also say to Timothy, for this reason, I also suffer these things. And Paul knew how to suffer, didn't he? Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. And I'm just trusting in his promises for that day. So keep looking upwards and keep looking forwards to all that's being reserved for you there. The existence of heaven. The assurance of heaven. Investing in heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ is the promised saviour. He's the one who sets us free from the captivity of our sins. He's the one who brings spiritual sight to these blind eyes. So that I can see him and all of these truths. He's the one who brings healing to our sin-sick souls. And why? To convince you of the existence of heaven. To grant you by faith in him the assurance of heaven. And to move you in praise of him to invest in heaven. Does that describe you?